And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show. Presented by RIA Advisors. Welcome to The Real Investment Show. I'm Danny Ratliff here with John Penn. Thank you guys for joining us. It's been an extended Thanksgiving vacation. Lance is unfortunately still out in a turkey coma. But uh, we're here. We're going to hold down the fort. Yesterday, as I'm sure some of you may have noticed, uh, had a little power surge here yesterday, a little technical difficulty. So Brent has been pulling his hair out. It's like MacGyver. Like MacGyver. Making it work. Well, hey, a lot of stuff going on. You know, been an interesting week. You know, did see a little bit of sloppiness um, over the last couple of days, kind of to be expected. Market's been fairly overbought. I uh, have seen rates sit around that 4.4 range. I think we could potentially get a little bit of a... Uh, rally in rates, which is not good for bondholders, but uh, could be a good buying opportunity if you do believe that this is going to be a spot where rates may not go up all that much. We did get new home sales yesterday, actually down from the median forecast at 725 of 679,000 new homes. Uh, today, we're going to get the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index and consumer confidence, and the Fed is going to go on the podium, there are going to be lots of Fed speakers talking, a lot of the governors coming out today. Uh, so we will be following closely what exactly they're going to say. I don't expect much to be changed at this moment. Um, you know, I think throughout the rest of the week, we'll hear from uh, uh, probably all of them. Um, GDP first revision tomorrow on Wednesday. And then what the Fed most closely watches PCE, personal consumption index or expenditures, excuse me, is going to be, uh, I think what, everybody's going to be watching you know a lot of interesting data coming out i mean i don't know if you guys hosted thanksgiving um we did and you know the um the price was the second highest thanksgiving dinner on record and you know they said basically second highest i mean we've had inflation everything's been extremely expensive uh but last year was three dollars more if you're hosting so um you know and most people were putting that on credit cards. Credit cards. Yeah. It's crazy. So, you know, we keep talking about potentially the consumer running out of runway here when it comes to credit, but they're finding more and more ways. In fact, um, you know, looking at holiday spending trends, it says 36% of people anticipate spending more this holiday season than last. Um, and that festive meals will be one of the biggest expenses. Of Americans who intend to host Thanksgiving, 58% anticipate using credit cards and accumulating debt just to cover the cost. 51% um, of respondents in the survey expect to spend $750 or more on gifts, while the big payment is going to be through credit cards. Mm -hmm. And we've also seen a big increase, which Lance has been talking about. He and I have been bantering. Hey, I don't understand how the consumer can continue to spend with the amount of credit card debt that we have. Uh, it crept up from $1.03 trillion to $1.08. I mean, we're talking about an enormous amount of debt out there. And 40% of the respondents said they're electing to use the buy now, pay later method. And, you know, that's quite a bit. And you, you have to think at some point, if people are using that, what are the reasons why? I mean, maybe they are too overextended on credit cards, so they're using this, or it's just another method to not put it on the credit card and, and not pay any interest, which, you know, hey, I'm a big fan of. But also, I think our rule is if you can't pay it off, don't put it on. 
So, you know, we're going to be watching this data. I think right now we're, the market is really trying to hang on every little word that's coming out essentially from the Fed, but also from, you know, what are the retail numbers really look like? Is the consumer much stronger than we anticipate in this season? And, you know, at what point do we actually see them run out of runway? Right now, it seems like there's <laughs> there's a lot of road in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. What, what did you guys host Thanksgiving, have you no, seen? We, we, we went to the chaos this year. Yeah, okay. Uh, so we went to uh, one of Shauna's sister's houses. We, we went there for Thanksgiving. Uh, but the chaos is coming. To, we're going to host for Christmas. Okay. So the, everybody's coming here. So if y'all all need a place to come, come on. Heck yeah. Come no. on, right? But uh, So hopefully the house will still be standing. But, uh, but yeah, we're going to be hosting for, for Christmas. But, um, but you were talking about the you know, kind of the buy now, pay later. And you know, PayPal is a very common tool that's used through that if paypal is used correctly it can, it can work very well right but the issue is if you don't pay off your your paypal i think they give you what is that uh is it six months of with no yeah if it's, if you if you are if you're able to pay off your balance through paypal within six months you can pay that off without interest but if you if you go over six months then you're charged i think it's 28 percent, 28.24 percent on that balance i mean Yikes. Well, the problem is, is that once that balance starts accumulating that interest, it is so tough to pay it off. You know, you, you're just paying down little by little, typically. And that's where we see people get into so much trouble. Um, we hosted this year and, you know, ours was much more expensive because uh, my daughter said, hey, will you take the turkey out and put it in the fridge? Well, okay. Went, ran some errands. Turkey's not in the fridge. <laughs> turkey's on the counter <laughs> at, at, you know, room temperature, you know, a day later. I'm like, oh, shoot. So, uh a little more costly than anticipated, but you know, little uh, salmonella turkey yeah, for a little, uh, for a little learning year. lesson. <laughs> Luckily, it was trash day the next day, so we were able to get it out uh, in time and go get another turkey to you know continue the festivities. But yeah, no, and so you know, it, it is interesting. The survey's coming out, and, and or they're suggesting that things were cheaper. I know most people we talk to, you know, especially we're seeing inflation numbers that have they have crept down. And everybody's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to the grocery store. Nothing is actually cheaper. I was like, well, that's right. We don't, we don't have deflation right now. We have disinflation where we see inflation is coming down from these much higher numbers. But it's still increasing year over year from those higher numbers. And so I think that's what's been difficult for many people is that, you know, we haven't actually seen that big price cut like we've been hoping for, or I think many have. But, you know, that doesn't come with necessarily great things either, because if we are seeing that, you know, we're, we're potentially going to see other issues. You know, Walmart came out two weeks ago with their earnings. They suggested, hey, we could potentially see deflation. Well, we'll see price cuts. And so we started thinking about that. So, OK, what does that mean? If companies are going to start cutting prices, what else are they going to cut probably before that? Probably staff. Mm-hmm. And so people. And so I think you have the two P's, people and prices. And unfortunately, people probably become before prices, which will become problematic for the broader economy if that does come to fruition you know we're hearing more and more about a soft landing and you know i was listening to some things this morning on the way in and that seems to be the the rhetoric that's out there you know and if you look at earnings estimates or even estimates just on the s p 500 um you know a lot of big analysts have come out and said listen 2024 is you know you you get both sides of it but a lot of them say look it's going to be choppy you know fixed income is going to be a great place to be i think there's a 74 cme forecast has a 74 percent chance of a rate cut by June. Hmm. So that's a pretty big high conviction, at least for the moment. Now that can change very, very quickly. And the, the dynamics that we're faced with right now make it challenging because if 
you have this great economic data, what is the Fed likely to do? They do either do nothing at all, right? You see rates creep back up. Or if they don't, they'll probably have to hike again at some point. And that's what makes this so challenging because then on the other end of this is that you get poor economic data. Does that actually get you to a soft landing if it's not too bad? And we can find kind of, you know, muddle our way through this. Um, you know, that's what I think is going to be the biggest challenge here is how do these companies continue to grow earnings? How do we continue to see um, the consumer demand still there? Um, at some point, you think that that would all have to weigh on the economy. And listen, the, the narrative for the cons seem to be so much easier. And just talking to different people, John, I know you see and hear this, mm -hmm. than what you know the, the pros are. And sometimes it is very difficult to rationalize something that may be irrational. And the markets can remain much more rational than we can remain rational. So we've got to be you know, very disciplined as far as how we invest, what we do, follow the technicals. Look, we expect to see a little bit of a pullback. We're getting into this December where we'll see mutual fund capital gain distributions. This is something that's not uncommon to see a little bit of a pullback. Markets already at an elevated spot after you know three months of negative market returns. We had four weeks that were great. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think we, it's easy to forget about August, September, and October. But you know, keep your eye on what's going on, understand it, and you know, not a bad time maybe to pare down a little bit if, if necessary. But we'll get back to this and more on the other side of this. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Real Investment Show. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the Real Investment Show. I'm Danny Ratliff here with Jonathan Penn. John hey, everybody. John's sharing his uh, his ideas on the, the less chaotic holiday season. You know, it, and, and I do like what you just said. I mean, you know, kind of spreading the love a little bit, having everybody do a little bit of something to to kind of help ease the burden. It does. Um, you know, at, at at our house, Michelle decided to start cooking on like Sunday or Monday, like trying new recipes, and she's always trying to eat things really healthy. So she's always trying to find a way to, you know, I'm not going to say cut corners because it makes it a little more difficult, um, but find ways to make food still edible and healthy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's some, she, she does a really, really good job. Uh, but there are a couple of things I'm like, yeah, I don't think it's going to make the cut. It was a good thing. You started this several days early on that. Then she wonders why she's so tired. I'm like, well, I mean, you kind of did this to yourself. You, ha you have an example of what didn't make the cut? Um, there were some cookies. Oh. You know, that's the problem, right? If you try to do these cookies that, you know, are really, uh, I'm calling them kind of hippie. Sorry, babe, if you're listening. Um, uh, hippie, it, cookies? hippie cookies? Well, it's just, you know, that you, you want to take all these things out of it. And were they they're just not nearly as good. Organic? I don't know, Brent. Are they earthy? They were cardboardy. <laughs> Um, and cookies made with cardboard. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, what else? There was uh, there was there was a couple iterations of pies. Yeah. Um, trying to think what else. We had some green a green bean casserole that maybe shouldn't have made the cut. Ooh, and I like some when when green bean casseroles right. That's some good stuff. It right was actually there. pretty good. In, in her defense, it was pretty good. But she's not buying the store bought gravy. She's doing everything the hard way. Yeah. Um, you know. No easy road at the Ratliff household. Just it's not possible. Yeah. So we're we were lucky that we went over to Shauna's family. So we everybody kind of brought their own dish, right? But yeah. then at the, and I love look, 
I'm a leftover guy. Yeah. And so the issue is when we went over there, we didn't have any leftovers. Ah, you know, yeah. So at least for Christmas, we're hosting for Christmas, right? So at least we'll have some leftovers that I can kind of eat on for a couple of days. So we did have leftovers. And the funny thing is, like, I'm the only one who wants to eat them. I'm like, no, no, no. We're not going to the – you kidding me? We're not going to the store. We're not going out to eat. We've got a, we've got a couple of days left of this. We're going to be fine. Um, so, you know, you turn turn turkey into, like, do a turkey oh, and sausage do. gumbo. You can yeah. do, you know, so many different things with it. Uh, nice having a little bit cooler weather down here in Texas. We don't always get that. So um, certainly something something we're – taking advantage of um so we get a lot of questions john and, and i think you know end of year everybody wants to kind of check off the checklist make sure they're dotting their i's crossing their t's and we'll, we'll probably get that either later today or tomorrow but a, a lot of things that are going on right now and i think a lot of questions because you know we are hearing the negative narratives and, and one thing you know just mentioned last segment a little bit about how you know you have some of the big firms coming out with um estimates for s p next year some of them are Rather flat. Some of them are a little bit more bullish than others. Uh, we don't really have a ton of bearishness, except for at least not with the the big wirehouses and big banks. But you know, last year, all these same people came out and said the first half of the year is going to be terrible. The second half of the year, we're going to have a recession priced in, and the second half is going to be great. We had one of the best Januarys on record. And next thing you know, everybody changed their tune very, very quickly. Now they came out and said, well, whoa, first half is going to be uh, great. And then the second half is going to be rough. Well, pretty easy to do that when you're looking in the rearview mirror. The only reason I bring this up is to give you a little context. We have to be extremely cautious with any of this information that you get because it is so subject to change. And it can change very quickly, just like we saw with the Fed going from not hiking, not hiking, not hiking to boom, fastest rate hiking campaign they've ever been on. That is something that, you know, we have to be aware of. Economic conditions change quickly. Policies change along with it. And, you know, we're going to see a lot of different things occur. And, you know, if we had a playbook and we could say, hey, here's a game plan. Here's how we're going to run this. You're going to have to be ready to call an audible, make a change, right? If this is a football game and you're at the line of scrimmage, you're, you're going to have to be prepared to say, whoa, defense changed here. We're going to have to change what we're doing a little bit. And, you know, we don't want to do so in a way that you make knee-jerk reactions because I think that's where many, many people get in trouble. But, John, you get a lot of questions. And so uh, one big one is still, what do you do with XX cash? Mm -hmm. And so for somebody who maybe has a lot of money sitting in a checking, a savings account um, that's sitting around, maybe you've just been accumulating funds over the years or you've been saying, hey, I, I don't trust the markets. I don't know what to do. Uh, or I don't trust myself dealing with the markets. We hear a lot of that as well. What do you tell somebody? Well, I think it all comes down to, excuse me, you know, ultimately, what do you need that money to do longer term? Or is are there some short-term needs? Or do you have some short-term expenditures for that cash, right? I mean, if you're if you're paying college tuition or if you've got, got that money set aside for property taxes, it's probably better just to kind of keep that where it is, just earn a higher rate of return right now. At least you you can kind of reap the rewards of the Fed being aggressive with raising short-term interest rates you're, you know, for the first time in a long time, you know, you're getting more attractive rates of return on that cash. But, it, you know, I know with you and Rich on the show on a regular basis, Danny, you guys always talk about, you know, making sure you have that financial vulnerability cushion, have that emergency mm -hmm. fund set aside. So, and that, and that, that number can kind of vary for everybody. Sometimes folks like to keep at least six months worth of expenses set aside in savings. Sometimes it's a year. 
you know, maybe it's two to three years of income or expenses that you have set aside. So that way, if we do hit some more volatile times in the market, you have some flexibility where you have that cash to pull from and it allows that you, you give markets that time to recover. So you're not being forced to sell securities potentially when they're in a lost position to raise that cash that you need for your living expenses. But I would say is it really comes down first looking at what are your expenses, look at your budget, let's figure out what it costs you to live and run your household every year, and then you set aside, whether if it's six months, one year, two, three years worth of expenses off to the side, then the rest that you have that's left over, then we can look at, okay, you know, you know, do we want to be a little bit more longer term with this? Do we want to be a little bit more growth oriented with this, with a more you know actively managed portfolio? And you know, some of that money that you have set aside in there, you know, do you keep all, for that emergency for those emergency funds? Do you just keep it all in a money market, or maybe you keep a year's worth, you know, of liquid funds in that money market that you can pull from, but put years two and three, you know, ladder into some short term treasuries right now. Take advantage of the higher yields. Um, you know, in addition to being a little bit longer term with that money, growth oriented portfolio, you know, do you, are, do you uh, participate in a high deductible health plan? Have you funded your HSA this year? Let's look at, are you maximizing all of the retirement savings vehicles that you have that you can use to your advantage? So it's, I know I'm rambling off a little bit here, but it's sometimes it's not a clear cut, simple answer. It really kind of depends on your budget and what your expenses are. And then we kind of go from there. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. Everybody's going to be a little bit different, and it's really going to be what the objective is, what the funds are intended to be used for. Um, visited with somebody yesterday. We have baseball practice. He had a rate sheet from a large private bank, mm -hmm. and I thought this was really interesting. We kind of looked at it together, and there it was basically CDs, CD ladders from a large institution, and the rates were actually pretty good one year and less, two year at about the two-year mark, they just fell off a cliff. And I mean, it was like, man, I don't know why you would do that. Um, because especially when you can go out and buy a five-year treasury at 4.41, a 10-year at 4.41, um, and then they were they were issuing CDs at 2.5 or less percent. And so, you know, this is another thing that you have to be cautious with. You know, everybody wants to play the game of, I want to get as much as I can right now. And I get it. I'm, I'm with you. I think we all want that. The problem is we have to think forward and say, what exactly happens? And if these institutions, so, so what that tells me, this institution believes that rates will be lower in the future. They'd rather pay us more now. And that way they can pay us less later. And so they're incentivizing us to go on the short end of this so that all of us put this money in into something to get a short-term you know, it's a three month, a six month, a nine, a 12, whatever it may be. And then when those funds roll at some point in the not so distant future, you're going to be stuck with that reinvestment risk. And that's what concerns me about, you know, the short term end of it. And, and I like it. Listen, if it's for something like, hey, I'm, I've got a tax bill coming up. I have, um, you know, like you mentioned, you know, had to pay for college, had to pay for, you know, school, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. You have need a new vehicle. I think this is a great tool. Use it to your advantage while you can. Um, but they're telling us that they think rates are going to be lower. Janet Yellen, three, four weeks ago, reissue some new debt. A lot of times when, when debt comes off the books, they'll essentially reissue it in the same term. Almost everything was really short. 
and and I thought about this. We've talked about this a little bit, John. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, that's a that gives a little bit of conviction to our thinking as well that rates will inevitably come down. It's smart. They'll pay a little bit more for the shorter period of time. Later, they're going to be saying, hey, we'll just reissue it at for long term for much cheaper rates. Um, but then again, I thought I was like, oh crap, it is Janet Yellen. And <laughs> where's Rich when you need him? We need a Janet Yellen impersonation. Well, that's why we can talk about her. That's true. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. So just something to, to keep in mind with this, but but I, everything you said, I think you hit hit the nail on the head, John. I mean, it's important to understand exactly what these funds are to be used for, what your time frame is for this, and you know what is the overall big picture. Some people are just using it as a short-term place to store funds because they think that the world is going to fall apart and things will be much cheaper, and that's, that's one thing you can do. Um, but I caution you on this is that a lot of times – it doesn't happen the way that you think it will. Kind of like this year. This year's been a difficult, challenging year for many. Uh, everyone, really, any anybody that's invested in a somewhat diversified portfolio, you're, you've struggled. Now, we've seen better market participation over the last month. But for, you know, 10 months of the year, it's been a challenge unless you're just strictly in tech. Mm-hmm. But we're going to talk more about some of the, the bigger ticket items and what do you do with XX Cash. We get right back on this side of this break. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com welcome back to the real investment show i'm danny ratliff here with john penn so if you've not done this already go to our youtube channel and go look up the real investment show um go subscribe Always lots of good banter there. And if uh, you miss a show or you're in the car, it's always an easy way to go back and uh, and listen. So I, I did make mention, evidently we've got a lot of deadheads on the, the the YouTube channel because I mentioned hippie cookies and, and I was mentioning like maybe taking some gluten out or sugar, not what you guys were thinking. So um, healthy, healthy, cookies. healthy. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, whoa, okay, hang on it? now. Somebody said they had the the uh, the healthy cookies one time, hippie cookie cookies one time, and they got the munchies after. So okay. they just ate more. That was the ingredient. <laughs> mm. All right. So we've, we've talked a lot about what to do with excess cash, and, and, you know, this is something that I feel like is is a topic that we cannot cover enough because we continuously get a lot of questions. So one thing, you know, if, if you do have a question, you can always go to realinvestmentadvice.com, go to the ask a question. Lance is really good about answering those and doing so very quickly, typically. But, um, you know, so talk a little bit about the yield curve, John. Maybe give a little bit better description because I think sometimes we take it for granted because we talk about it so often. And and listen, I know a lot of you out there are really sophisticated. You, uh, you know exactly what it is. Uh, but the average investor may not. Tell us a little bit about just like just break it down in a yeah, quick. Yeah, you know when when you when I think about the yield curve, the best way that I can really describe it, Danny, it's it's time, right? So it kind of think of the yield curve almost like a 
like a horizontal axis, like an x-axis, and you have kind of two opposite ends of the yield curve. And when, when we're talking about the yield curve and talking about time, we're talking about debt instruments or bonds that fall all along the curve. And on, so on one extreme, let's call it the short end of the yield curve, you have debt instruments or let's say bonds. In this case, let's say treasury bonds that have a short lifespan. Let's say they last for three months, six months, nine months, a year, maybe out to two years, right? Then you go on the other extreme of the yield curve, let's call it the long end. And out there, that's where bonds have a life of, let's say, 20 years, 30 years, right? And the interest rates that those bonds pay across the yield curve, they move for different reasons. On the short end of the yield curve, you know, those interest rates adjust up or down really by what the Federal Reserve is doing. So as the Fed has been raising short-term interest rates over the last two years, You've seen your yields or your interest rates on short-term debt instruments, money market funds, short-term CDs, short-term treasuries. You know, you're, you're getting on short-term treasuries a little bit north of 5%, right? And then on, so in a, in a, with a normal yield curve environment, the yields or the interest rates that short-term bonds pay you should be less than what you are paid on the long end. Because if you think about it, if I'm going to invest in a bond, Danny, if I'm going to put money into a three-month bond or a 20-year bond, as an investor, if I loan, and a bond is nothing more than a loan, and I know Mike and Lance, they, they've discussed bonds you know, ad nauseum on the show here, but in, it, it is principle, you know, a bond is a loan. If I invest in a bond, I'm basically loaning my money to an entity for a specific period of time, and that entity is going to pay me interest on that on that it's, bond. it's an IOU so it's, it's an either, IOU you know the government municipality or right. a corporation you got it. and there's lots of different entities that you can invest in bonds but you're right Danny it's an IOU but really you should be as an investor if I'm going to put my money into a 10 or a 20 or a 30 year bond well that that time element there's more time to allow that entity to maybe default on that IOU back to me right so I'm taking more risk if I'm investing in a 10 or a 20 or 30 year bond. Hence, I should be paid more interest on that. Well, right now, because the Fed has been so aggressive with raising short-term interest rates, the yield curve is what they call it's inverted. You're getting paid more from short-term bonds right now than you are on long-term bonds. And it should be the other way around. So when you hear folks talking about the yield curve, it's just time. You know, and how long do those bonds across the across the curve? How long are they are are they in existence for? Correct. Right. So in a normal economy or a normal environment, you would typically see that the three, six, you know, nine, twelve month would be paying less than a than a two year, right? And it's it typically goes up, but with the inversion. We're seeing the exact opposite, where right. the very short-term debt is paying more, and so historically, that does signal a recession here at some time in the future. Um, and so, just things to you know, just want to bring that out, especially we're talking about you know how people can use XX cash, what you do with it, you know, our concerns over the potential for lower rates in the future. That at that point, you know, that reinvestment risk that we we just discussed. So, another big question that we get, and I, and I think. This is where financial mainstream financial media does a really poor job with this. Is they say, "What's your number?" Mm. And everybody wants to know, like, "What is your number?" You've seen those commercials where you know you got these numbers in the sky, and everybody's going around saying, "My number's this," and mine's you know two million, three million. And the problem with that, I think, especially for younger folks, is that it makes it extremely difficult to comprehend how you ever get to that number. 
And so sometimes people just say, ah, forget it. I'm never going to get there. Um, you know, we talk about Rome wasn't built in a day. Neither is your financial security, your nest egg, your retirement. And I think that's really important. And so when somebody asks you that, what do, what do you typically say? That seems to be the, the biggest question. I mean, if I meet anybody on the street and like, oh, you're a financial advisor, what do I need to retire? Yeah. Just what is that sum of money where I can retire comfortably? And the answer is it's so different for everybody. And, and a lot of it really comes down to just, uh, and again, not to sound like a broken record here, but a lot of it comes down to your expenses and your budget and how much are you spending every year just to, you know, keep your lights on and keep food on the table. What about, you know, what are your other goals? Do you have traveled? Are there, are you charitably inclined? You know, do you have philanthropic needs or, or desires, or do you want to leave a legacy to your family? And so all of that, all of those various, what we call wants and needs and wishes, they all, you know, you know, lead into just, you know, what amount of money do you really need? And at the end of the day, it's not so much what is your number, and that, that is important, but it's also what is, what is the rate of return that you really need to earn on these monies that you're setting aside in savings? What is that hurdle rate? What is the rate of return that you need specifically for all this to work? Right? Over a longer period of time. Over a longer periods of time. Not six months, not eight months, but over longer periods of time. What is that rate of return that you need for your, and what we're really talking about here is a plan looking at a financial plan, looking at this big picture, looking at this holistically to really answer that question, right? Yeah, and I think it's difficult because, you know, when we talk about, you know, the returns over time, you know, we, we factor in negative poor returns over different market times and periods. And it's, it's difficult because you may have a time period where maybe you're a little bit under that rate um, because you had a, a poor market. Like last year, for example, we had a lot of people um, that would call in and say, guys, you know, we talked to so-and-so, their plan still worked my plan doesn't work anymore. And so you'd find out that their advisor was using, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12% returns, which number one, are probably not always achievable. I mean, year to year. Yeah, of course you can get really good returns, but is that going to be, what does that look like when you get a bad year? Like you saw in 2022, mm -hmm. it diminishes quite a bit of that. And, you know, so that's where you have to be cautious. The other aspect is I have told people with, you know, half a million dollars that they can retire. I've told people with you know, tens of millions of dollars that they cannot. And so it comes back to what you just said. It's all about the spending. It's all about the longevity. What does that look like for you and your family? Um, how long can these funds go? Do you have a pension? I know those are like dinosaurs. They're extinct at this point. But, you know, many people don't. But there's still enough of you out there that do, which can really, really help. Every little bit helps. Do you have rental income? Do you have any other type of income? Are you doing contract work? I mean, all these little things add up, and the longer we work, the typically the better the plan works, uh, which you know ideally should make common sense. But that is tough, and then I think it's really good to break it down and understand. Okay, actually knowing where your funds go, where are you putting money each and every month? Are you paying yourself first? Right, that's the biggest old investment adage: pay yourself first. Do you actually do that? Where are you putting those funds? You know, we, we've always talked about a hierarchy of savings, and I think this is really important, you know, especially right now, year in, trying to tie up, um, you know, making sure before the end of the year that you take advantage of everything you can through your employer, uh, putting funds aside, you know, from a tax advantage or efficient way. And I may not just mean putting everything pre-tax. 
everybody wants to save money today, but we've got a looming, you know, tax that's that's going to change, right? Our taxes are about to change here in 2026, mm -hmm. where they revert backwards. Brackets condense, rates go up a tad bit. Um, so you could potentially, you're not always retiring in the same in the same income bracket or a lower one, actually more often it's probably the same than it is lower is what we find. Because when you start taking out, you know, how much you put in on your 401k, what are your other pre-tax expenses that actually you find? And then what are you saving? You may not be in a much different situation than where you'll be in the future. And, and I'm sure it's something you see too. Yeah, I do. You know, we're we're lucky that we, we you know the clients and the the individuals and families that we serve they're all great savers. I mean they they really they are great savers. Yeah, no doubt about that. But and um, but you know there are a lot of folks that you know are a little they're a little older where maybe the Roth wasn't as prevalent in the past, right? So mm -hmm. they have a lot of money in their pre-tax, you know, their 401k. They move it all to their rollover rollover their traditional or rollover IRA. And as they start pulling money out, you know, that's all taxable income. And they go, I just don't understand. Why are my taxes still so high? Right? Yeah. You see a lot of people who that is the mm -hmm. only funds they have is right. in that pre-tax. So that's actually a great segue. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about the Roth 401k, Roth IRA. What's the proper ways to use them? What are the things that you need to know? So thanks for listening to Real Investment Show. We'll be right back after this break. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com welcome back to the real investment show i'm danny ratliff here with jonathan penn um, we appreciate y'all joining us this tuesday morning so talked a lot about, you know, just questions that we get, things that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. And one thing I think that you've encountered quite a bit here recently, John, mm -hmm. is Roth 401ks versus a Roth IRA. And I'm not really sure that, you know, as a, as a whole, that the financial media does a really good job or benefits groups of explaining this and why you would use one over the other. And maybe talk a little bit about some of the challenges that people see with this or maybe the really probably more than challenges, misconceptions. Yeah, I, I think there's still, you know, there's a lot of education to be done with this. Um, I know we talk, I mean, we're big fans of the Roth. Uh, I know we talk about it a lot. But here lately, I'm, I'm getting a lot of questions around, okay, John, wait a minute. What, what is a Roth 401k? You know, is that even something that's available to me? How do I find out? And then how is that different from a Roth IRA? And of course, what makes it confusing is, you know, there are a separate set of rules on how you can qualify to possibly make a contribution to a Roth IRA and can you make a contribution to a Roth 401k. So there's different rules for each and that always makes it fun and interesting to, to, to keep up with this. Uh, but basically, you know, we, you know, with the Roth IRA, you know, money goes in after tax. You don't get a deduction when you put money into a Roth IRA. You're paying what you're putting money into the Roth IRA with after tax dollars. It's the same thing with a Roth 401k. 
you know, with your with your pre-tax Roth 401k, money goes in pre-tax. You're not taxed on that income. It goes into that 401k plan, then yeah, traditional 401k plan, and then later in life when you either retire, you move away from that business, that money goes into your traditional rollover IRA, or when you use that money, that's when you pay the tax on it, right? Well, with a Roth 401k, you're, you're putting after-tax money in the Roth 401k now, so that way later in life, when you're older, you're retired, you're going to be pulling money out of that account, it comes out tax-free, right? Well, what's confusing between the Roth 401k and the Roth IRA is, with the Roth IRA, depending on if you file single or if you file a joint return, depending on the income that you earn, you may or may not be able to contribute to a Roth IRA. Like for example, for 2023, if you're a single taxpayer, if you make over $153,000, well, you in the eyes of the IRS, you make too much money to make a contribution to a Roth IRA. If you file a joint return for 2023, if your income is over $228,000, no dice, you cannot put money into a Roth IRA. Those amounts increase for 2024. For a single taxpayer in 2024, if your income is over 161,000, you cannot put money into a uh, Roth IRA. For a joint return, if you make over, if your joint income is greater than $240,000 next year in 2024, you cannot put money into a Roth IRA. And, and, and only to confuse matters more, yeah, you could actually still, maybe if you make a little bit less than those numbers, Put in a partial contribution, yes. but now you got to calculate. You got to make sure that you don't put in too much. The IRS frowns upon that. Um, it is not, you know, it's almost. I almost rather them not have that. So they say between this amount and this amount, it's you phased. can contribute. Like you said, what is it? One thirty-eight to one fifty-three, I think. Um, Right, you know that's where if you're single, you've got that little bit of bandwidth where maybe There's you can a put a little some bit in. of wiggle room there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then I actually was visiting with, with a client yesterday who said, now, hold on a second. I have, I, I did check. I have the ability to contribute to a Roth 401k through my employer's plan. And they file a joint return. They're high income earners. And she said, well, I make too much money. I can't put money into the Roth 401k. I said, well, I said, you guys earn too much. You cannot make a contribution to a Roth IRA, but it doesn't matter how much you earn. If you have the ability to contribute to a Roth 401k through your employer's plan, doesn't matter how much money you make, you can absolutely participate and contribute to the Roth 401k through your plan, through your employer's plan. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest misconception is that most people hear about the Roth IRAs and they know the income limits on it. And so for a high income earner, it's, it's a little bit foreign that they're able to go put these funds into the Roth 401k. And, you know, many people... Have always thought, okay, well, I make you have these conversations. I make too much money, I can't right. contribute to it, but that's not the case. And you actually have a lot more bandwidth where, you know, in a Roth IRA, you can only put a, you know, if you're under 50, you can put 6,500 bucks. If you're over 50, you get a catch up provision, you can do 7,500. Um, you can put in, if you're under 50, into a, a 401k, 22,500. Mm -hmm. uh, if you get a catch up provision that allows you to put up to 30,000 if you're over 50. So you can still do this. Now, I think it's difficult for many because number one, you know, you think that the income limit limitation is there, right? Uh, number two, if you're a high income earner, you know, we've always been told that we need to put these funds aside pre-tax because we're going to retire in that much lower tax bracket. So it's kind of shifting the way that most people think. And 
it is really difficult when you start thinking about, well, ideally, I should be spending much less in retirement. So this should make sense because then I would be pulling these funds out at a lower tax bracket. That's just unfortunately not always the case, not to mention, you know, we could spend a whole nother segment on what's going on in the world, the amount of debt that's out there and how in the world are we going to pay for it? That's a whole nother problem. But that would lead me to believe that having funds and some diversification in other areas that are not all pre-tax is going to be extremely advantageous in the future. And we won't even get into all the back pocket taxes that we talk about from a you know, Social Security being taxed, um, Medicare surcharges you know, for charges. premiums, Irma. Mm-hmm. You know, those are little things, but they all add up. So part of this game is about, you know, number one, how do you accumulate? Where do you accumulate to give you more flexibility later in retirement to keep more money in your pocket? And I can't tell you how many people forget about those additional you know, taxes that, that they incur because most people don't know about it. It's not talked about. So, you know, it used to be, you know, only a couple of years ago, about half of the 401ks had the ability to go put funds into a Roth. With the new Secure Acts, it's actually 89% in 2022. Mm-hmm. And so, which I think is great news. I mean, we're moving the needle in the right direction. And it's something that is extremely warranted because how many people have you seen that every dollar they have outside of maybe a little bit of a savings is inside the 401k? And while that's great, they retain no flexibility. So, you know, you see people and, and we talk about, you know, we call it the retirement smile. You you retire, you're going to check off bigger ticket items. You're probably going to spend a little bit more money, um, you know, bucket list stuff. And all of a sudden they're pulling everything out of the 401k and it's all taxable. Like, whoa, hey, I didn't realize I was going to have to worry about this. But they don't have that flexibility that you would have with that Roth 401k. That's right. And, and I was just having lunch with uh, with another client couple. It was about two weeks ago. And you know, they are great savers, but the issue, and it just when in their quote unquote time of, of saving, you know, the Roth 401k just wasn't an available option. They just didn't have it. So their main investment vehicle was their pre-tax 401k plan. Yeah. Um, but, and, and the, the, the wife made the comment of, you know, I really wish I would have been able to participate more in a Roth 401k or I wish somebody would have told me about this many, many years ago. I would I wish I would have been more educated about this because now you know, every time they take money out of their traditional, uh, you know, their whether if it's property taxes or they need a new AC unit for their home or they need to go buy a new vehicle, every time they're taking money out of their IRAs, it's all taxed as ordinary income, right? And the, the challenge with them is, unfortunately, they don't have a lot of cash that's set aside in an emergency fund that's not an IRA. Their IRAs are their workhorses. Right. And that's that's so it's like the double whammy. They're getting taxed on everything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and another caveat is that all of people talk about, okay, well, required minimum distributions. Right. So right now that's at 73. That's actually going to be changing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we continuously see them kind of raise the needle. But we know people, most people, the average American is are using these funds to live on. But with that Roth IRA, you're not going to be required to take. RMDs from it, those required minimum distributions, which I'm sure if you have funds out there in an IRA, you're of age, you're probably getting calls from your advisors now saying, hey, guys, we haven't taken this this distribution. We need to go ahead and do so. Uh, everybody's trying to get ahead of the, you know, the last minute kind of rush to the to get that done for those distributions. But that's another nice tool. The other part of this Secure Act is actually, you know, they've changed how people inherit IRAs. Used to be able to take it if you had a non-spousal beneficiary, they could take it over their lifetime. And now there's a 10-year window. And 
while that's nice to have a little bit of a wiggle room here and some room that you can take these funds out over 10 years, in that Roth IRA, the funds are still not taxable. Whereas in the traditional IRA, your heirs, which may be at their peak earning years, uh, maybe they've done a great job. This is something that, that, you know, at the end of the day, we want our funds to go as far as they can. You've worked hard for them. Find ways to protect them. And so this is another avenue that you can do so. Yeah, it is. And, and let's maybe you're, maybe you're, you know, maybe you are retired or let's say you're, uh, and you're not quite of the age where you're having to start taking your required minimum distributions yet. I mean, maybe there's a window there where possibly, maybe you have all this money in this traditional or this rollover IRA. You know, sometimes a conversion, maybe you can convert to a Roth. And there's a lot of rules around Roth conversions, and that's maybe some information for a, for a whole different show. But sometimes it makes sense to, you know, everybody's situation is different. Maybe it makes sense to convert some of that money from a traditional IRA to the Roth now. And who knows what taxes will be in the future? We don't really think income taxes will be any less, right? But maybe you were talking about those non-spousal beneficiary IRAs. Maybe it makes sense to convert some money to the Roth. So that way, heaven forbid, you pass away, leave that money to a child. Then that's tax-free. It can be a great estate planning tool. Yeah, Possibly. a fantastic planning tool. I mean, there's so many different things that are out there. We're yeah. going to get into more of that this week. But, John, thanks for joining and sharing such valuable information. Hey, if you have any questions, go to realinvestmentadvice.com. If you have not been to YouTube, go to The Real Investment Show. Sign up there. Go subscribe. Hit the like button, please. And if you like what we're saying or doing, share it. So um, we'll be back tomorrow. Thank you for joining us. Everybody have a great Tuesday. Uh, Lance will be back, uh, I don't know, whenever he's done with his extra turkey, when he's back. See y'all.